I call attention once more to the words that are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 8, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. Verses 5 to 8 in the 8th chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. We are still working out this comparison and contrast which the apostle uh, works uh, out in these verses. And it is a very vital statement, of course. The first question that should occur to us is as to why the apostle does it at all. And we have seen that the answer is that he's amplifying what he said at the end of verse 4, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And that he added that to the statement that he'd made at the beginning of verse 4, which is that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, that is the leading theme. He is concerned to show that it is true of all who are in Christ Jesus that the righteousness of the law shall be fulfilled in them. Finally, in a perfect sense, entire and complete, but that it is something which starts even in this life and in this world. In other words, his great theme is assurance of salvation, the absolute certainty of the final arrival of all who are in Christ, in glory, in a state of complete perfection. And what he's concerned to show is that nothing can stop this. And he's showing us why that is the case. And the reason is, of course, that the Christian man is a man who's entirely changed. He's no longer in the flesh, but in the spirit. He's no longer after the flesh, but after the spirit. He is in Christ. He's being governed by the law of the Spirit of Christ, which is in Christ Jesus. Uh, the law of the Spirit, which is Spirit of life, which is in Christ Jesus. And this, uh, he says, has delivered him altogether out of that old realm of the law and the flesh and death. He's an entirely new man. And it is because of that that the righteousness of the law can be fulfilled in him. Nothing else could do that. The law itself couldn't see to it that its own righteousness should be fulfilled. It was weak through the flesh. But God has worked it this other way, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and so on. Well, now then, this is obviously, therefore, quite a crucial matter. This is something that only happens to those who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Well, then, we must be clear why that is the case. It cannot happen to those who walk after the flesh. It does happen to those who walk after the Spirit. So he is very anxious we should be perfectly clear about that distinction. So in these verses, he gives us a picture of men after the flesh and men after the Spirit. If you like, the non-Christian and the Christian. And we are now in process of looking at the Christian. The first thing he tells us about the Christian is that he walks, that he minds the things of the Spirit. They that are after the Spirit, led by the Spirit, mind the things of the Spirit. And then we saw last week in 
verse 6, the reason why they do that, and that is because they're alive. The contrast is that uh, to be carnally minded is death, to have the mind of the flesh is death, but to be spiritually minded is life. The Christian is a man who's alive. He's got new life in him, new creature, new creation. He's alive from the dead. And he is uh, lively, therefore, and has power and ability, which he didn't have before. The dead can do nothing, but the Christian is a man who's alive in a spiritual sense. Now, that's the point at which we've arrived. But here at once we notice that the apostle doesn't just say that the uh, contrast between the non-Christian and the Christian is that the non-Christian is dead, but that the Christian is alive. He adds another word. To be carnally minded is death. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. He adds this further expression. And that's the thing at which we are going to look this evening. Now, why do you think he added this? Why didn't he just uh, leave it at life? Life seems to be the complete contrast uh, to death. But the apostle says life and peace. Why, why the addition? Well, surely it's a significant one and an important one. To me, uh, the best way of approaching it is this. Why did he select peace of everything when he could have put in other words? He's talking about the Christian men as being a man who's in the realm of the Spirit. Very well. We know from Galatians 5 that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and then peace. Why didn't he say then that to be carnally minded is death, but uh, to be spiritually minded is life and love and joy? But he takes the third word instead of the first. Love, joy, peace. And this is the word that he chooses and selects. And obviously, therefore, we must address our minds to that particular question. Why peace rather than anything else? And it seems to me there is only one adequate answer to the question. The point is that the apostle, as I've just reminded you, is anxious to show how the righteousness of the law can be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Now there are certain obstacles to this fulfilling of the righteousness of the law. And he's been telling us what they are in giving us a description of the man who walks after the flesh. He minds the things of the flesh. He's dead spiritually. He's at enmity against God. He's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And so he cannot please God. So it is quite impossible that the righteousness of the law should be fulfilled in him. But now on the other hand he says, this righteousness of the law can be fulfilled in us. How? And why? Well, now then, as you examine this word peace, I think you get an answer to that particular question. Let me put it to you like this. From the sheer standpoint of mechanics, did you notice one very peculiar thing here? In verse 5, the apostle gives the two signs. They that are after the flesh to mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. You've got the negative and the positive. Verse 6, to be carnally minded is death, negative, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, positive. But go on to verse 7 and verse 8. There you notice he only gives the negative and drops the positive. 
The carnal mind is enmity against God, is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And you expect him to say, but the spiritual mind, but he doesn't do so. Then in verse 8 he says, so they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Then you expect him to add, but they that are in the spirit can and do, but he doesn't say it. Why not? Well, my suggestion to you this evening is that it's all been said in the word peace. And that he put in the word peace here because it is the word that provides us with the complete contrast. It, 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 it supplies the negative, it supplies the positives that are not actually stated in verses 7 and 8. So that as we work out the contents word peace, we shall incidentally be completing our exposition of uh, not only verse 6, but also verses 7 and 8. It was unnecessary to write out the positive in verses 7 and 8 because it has all already been said. And of course there is a further reason, uh, surely, why he chooses uh, this particular word, peace. Whenever the apostle thinks at all in terms of uh, justification by faith, the first thing that comes to his mind is peace. We've already had it at the beginning of chapter 5. Therefore, being justified by faith, what happens? We have peace with God. That's the first thing. And we will find again in chapter 14 that he does exactly the same thing in verse 17, where he works out a point and puts it like this. He says, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, well, what is it? Oh, he says, it is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Righteousness and peace go together. Peace is the first thing that you experience always as the result of this righteousness from God which is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then uh, we then are confronted by a word that is obviously a key word in the New Testament and in our understanding of the Apostles' teaching, particularly at this point. But let us also remember that what we are going to discover about peace provides us once more with a very thorough and minute means of examining ourselves and our state and condition as Christian people. Very well, let's look at it. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. What peace? What kind of peace? What's the content of the term? Well, the first thing, of course, is peace with God. You see, he's considering how the righteousness of the law is to be fulfilled in us. And the first thing you've got to say is this. The righteousness of the law can never be fulfilled in any man who is not at peace with God. Now, he's already told us that negatively about the unbeliever. You see, that's the, the statement of verse 7, isn't it? Here is this man, the unbeliever. He's spiritually dead. Yes, but not only that. He is at enmity against God. His whole understanding of God is quite wrong. He regards God as an enemy. God is someone whom he hates. Let's remind ourselves of that. The natural man hates God. He may say he believes in God. According to the scripture, he hates God. The natural man is a hater of God. He's at enmity against God. 
He feels that God is against him. He wishes there wasn't a God. Well, obviously, such a man cannot possibly please God, neither can the righteousness of the law of God be fulfilled in him. The second thing he told us about the unbeliever was that he was not subject to the law of God. He hates the law of God. The world is proving that today. The world hates even the notion of law. The world hates discipline. The world talks about what it describes as freedom, which is nothing but license. Man, by nature and in sin, wants to be alone to himself. He wants to do what he wants to do, what he likes to do, what pleases him, what takes his fancy at the moment. And he objects to every suggestion of law and discipline and government and order. The natural man is an anarchist always. And there is nothing that is becoming so increasingly evident in this modern world as it falls away from God and from religion than this element of anarchy and lawlessness and disorder that is coming in in every realm of life and leading to terrible confusion and chaos. So this man, you see, he is not subject to the law of God. Indeed, we are told more about him. He is not even capable of being. Neither indeed can he. Because he is what he is, because of the evil that is in him, the perversion and the power of sin, he cannot even desire to be subject to the law of God. Very well, but now, here is a man on the other hand, the Christian, who has got life and peace. Yes, and primarily peace with God. What does that mean? It means this. Here is a man who really has come to a knowledge of God as God is. The first thing that is true about the Christian is that he's the only man who has a true conception of God. The first call in preaching always is a call to repentance. That's what John the Baptist preached. That's what our Lord preached. That's what the prophets had been preaching. The first note of all preaching in a Christian sense is the call to repentance, which means to think again. And to think again about God and yourself and the relationship between you. But the first call is to think again about God. The most terrible sin of all is this false thinking about God, about which, of which the natural man is so terribly guilty. But the Christian is a man who has come to see and to know God. God as he is. God as he, is, as he has revealed himself. And the result of that is that he loves God. No man can be a Christian without realizing this, that in spite of his having been the rebel that he was, in spite of all that was so true of him in sin, the perversion and the foulness and the pollution, in spite of the fact that he deserved nothing but hell, that God so loved him as to send his only begotten son into the world to save him. Here in his love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, says 1 John 4, 9, which we read at the beginning. Now, the Christian is a man who knows that. And the moment he knows that, he has this new conception of God. God. God is no longer one whom he hates. He's absolutely overwhelmed by the love of God. God who's done this for him who didn't spare even his only begotten son, but sent him in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. Ah, oh, says the man, how wrong I've been. 
to be at enmity against such a God. I see now the character of God. Oh, how wrong I was. The enmity is banished. He sees God as he is and he loves him. The hatred has disappeared and has vanished completely. To quote John again in that first epistle, chapter 4, verse 16, We know the love that God hath to us. That's what we've discovered. So, you see, we are at peace with God. The old enmity is gone. We realize he's put our sins away. The barrier has been removed. The veil has been taken away. And we have entered into this knowledge of God, which gives us life and peace. And then, of course, secondly, because of that, we are in no trouble any longer with regard to the law of God. The, for the other men, you see, he, uh, the carnal mind is enmity against God, and because of that it is not subject to the law of God. As I say, the natural man hates every kind of law, especially the law of God. And he doesn't believe in a God who has laws. He doesn't believe in the God as foolish, uh, a foolish preacher whose sermon I read recently put it, he doesn't believe in the God that sat on top of Mount Sinai giving out his commandments. No, you see, he believes in a God whom he's conjured up in his own sentimental, sloppy heart. But here is a man who's got a true view of law. And uh, his position is this. He not only... It's not only true to say of him that he is not not subject to the law of God. We must put it positively. He delights in the law of God. Did you notice 1 John 5, 3? His commandments are not grievous, says John. That's the Christian. His commandments are not grievous. They're grievous to everybody else, but they're not grievous to the Christian. A man who objects to the Ten Commandments is not a Christian. A man who objects to the demands of the Sermon on the Mount is not a Christian. The Christian says, that is exactly what I would expect from God. That is exactly how I and everybody else should live. If only the whole world lived like that, it would be paradise once more. His commandments are not grievous. His commandments are an expression of God's character, and they were designed for the good of men. And so he says, Oh, how I love thy law. The psalmist even had been able to say that. The Christian says it much more. He delights in the law of God. He sees its glory and its excellence, and he desires to keep it. That's an expression of his peace. You see, until you become a Christian, you're fighting against the law of God. The moment you become a that fight ends, that's peace. So you see, this word peace is answering verse 7 step by step. The natural mind, this carnal mind, is enmity against God, is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be subject to it. Ah, yes, but when you come to the Christian, you say at once he can be subject to it. And he is subject to it. And he desires to be subject to it. And he goes out of his way to subject himself to it. He hungers and he thirsts after righteousness. He wants to keep these commandments that God has given. So in these various ways... This man is at peace with God. And because he's at peace with God, there is this wonderful possibility of the righteousness of the law being fulfilled in him. But only in him, which is exactly what Paul had said in verse 4. 
that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Very well, there's the first thing, peace with God. But let us look at it for a moment from the standpoint of the, the Christian men having peace within. Not only peace between him and God who is outside him, but peace within. And here is something I think which is very wonderful. Shows us the glory of the Christian life. I would divide this into negative and positive. This peace within, negative. The first aspect is this. The end of the restlessness. The first thing that happens to a man when he becomes a Christian is that he gets rid of the restlessness which he had always known in his old life because it is always the main characteristic of the life of sin. If you want the perfect description of that, you'll get it in Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 20. The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters throw up mire and dirt. The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest. That's men in sin. The sea in the Bible generally means the ethnic nations, the unbelievers. Israel is never the sea. It's the non-Christians, the people who are not the people of God, who are the sea. And that's a very wonderful description of them. I sometimes wonder whether a Christian should like the sea at all. Well, all right, I can prove what I'm saying. The book of Revelation tells us that when that... Restoration takes place, the regeneration. There was no sea there. There'll be no sea there. You see, this restlessness of sin, the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters throw up mire and dirt. This constant movement and motion, this apparent uselessness and waste of energy, the churning up of mud and mire and wreckages, that's the life of sin, a restless life. But that comes to an end when one becomes a Christian. They that are after the flesh, he says, they are dead. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. End of the restlessness. Oh, I quote obviously again that great and moving statement of Augustine, Thou hast made us for thyself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Don't you see this restlessness in the world tonight? Don't you see it? All the uncertainty, the unhappiness, all this restlessness that characterizes the life of unbelief and of sin. Because secondly, in this negative, it is a life of dissatisfaction. That's the extraordinary thing about the life of sin, about, peop about which people boast so much. It never satisfies them. Over it all, you can write this, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The life that people are living tonight outside Christ never gives them satisfaction. They pay money for it, they'll spend large sums of money. There is never real satisfaction. It's a life, you see, that stimulates and draws out of us instead of giving to us. It always leaves us tired, weary, exhausted, in pain, with remorse and so on. 
never full satisfaction. Vanity of vanities, all is vanities. The wise men have tried it all. He tried learning, he tried pleasure, he tried putting up buildings. You read the book of Ecclesiastes, and there you'll see a very able, intelligent man really trying to find satisfaction in life without God. He tried it all with an absolute thoroughness. He couldn't find it. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. But you know, the moment you become a Christian, that stops. The, the, the other men, let me put it as a third point, then a third negative. The great thing about the Christian is that he comes to the end of his futile seeking and searching for that which he cannot find. The non-Christian is always trying to find satisfaction, peace, joy, happiness, truth, and he can't find them. The tragedy is, of course, that they boast about that. They boast even of the search and the seeking. You know, the, the popular thing is to say that you don't like Christianity because it's dogmatic, because it seems to have arrived. They say, oh, the great thing is the thrill of the quest. But what a confession. Always seeking, never finding. Always hoping, but never really arriving. Traveling, but no end to the journey. Trying to find truth and wisdom, but they never find it. But now, for me to turn to the positive, the Christian is absolutely different. Life and peace. What peace is this? Well, this, you see, is a rest in the truth. That's the glorious thing about it. A Christian is a man who's arrived. I'm not seeking for truth in this pulpit this evening. I'm here because I found it. Can the blind lead the blind? Of course not. As our Lord says, they'll both fall into the ditch. The Christian's not a man who's seeking for truth. He's a man who's found it. Found by it, if you like, I don't care. But all I know is that he's found it. That's the great statement again of 1 Corinthians 2. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, the Spirit that searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. What man knoweth the Spirit of a man, save the Spirit of man that is in him? Even so knoweth no man the things of God, but the Spirit of God. See, the natural man receiveth not these things, because their foolishness unto him neither can he their spiritually discerned. So he that is spiritual judgeth all things. He's got an understanding, yet he himself is judged of no man. Who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? We have the mind of Christ. Rest in the truth. Christ is the light of the world. And he's opened our eyes to see the light. Do you remember how he puts it at the end of the 11th chapter of Matthew's Gospel? I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, the seekers after truth, and the men who believe they can get there by philosophy. I thank thee that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. He has revealed it unto them. He is the light of the world. He says, he that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. We know where we are going. What's it mean? It means this. And this is true of every Christian. The Christian is a man who understands life. Nobody else does. These people who are living for pleasure and the philosophers tonight, they don't understand life. They, they say so. They admit it. 
The pleasure seekers don't even think. The others try to, but they can't succeed. But none of them really understand life. They don't understand themselves. They don't understand men. They don't understand death, and they try not to think about it for that reason. They don't know what lies beyond it. But you know, the Christian does. A Christian is a man who's arrived at peace about all this. He's got a philosophy of life. It's given him in this book. He says with Horatius Bonner, I heard the voice of Jesus say, I am this dark world's light. Look unto me. Thy dawn shall rise and all thy days be bright. I looked to Jesus and I found in him my star, my sun. And in this light of life I'll walk till traveling days are done. The Christian of necessity is a man who understands the meaning of life in this world. We are pilgrims and strangers. We are sojourners. We are children of God in an alien land. We are traveling on to God. Are you troubled about the state of the world tonight in this sense that you say, why should it be like this? You shouldn't if you're a Christian. You should say, because the world is governed by sin and evil and the devil, it can't help being like this. And you're not surprised when international conferences fail. You're not surprised when things go from bad to worse. You say, the Bible has told me all that. The Christian has got the secret to an understanding of his own life, the life of the community at large, the life of the world. He's not appalled by the thought of death. He knows he's going on to it, and he's got something to look forward to beyond it. He's found rest in the truth. He's arrived. He has a knowledge of the truth which has been revealed to him. But I also want to emphasize this. He has got a, an inner tranquility, life and peace. What do you mean? Well, I mean this. The Christian is a man who is living at the center of a hurricane. I understand that at the center of the hurricane there is a point of complete rest. Everything's twirling round and round, not at the center. That's fixed. So is the Christian. So the Apostle Paul is able to say, in nothing be anxious, nothing. It's a comprehensive, all-inclusive term. In nothing be anxious. Throw in anything you like. All the troubles and the difficulties and the problems and the trials that the world and the flesh and the devil can produce together. In nothing be anxious. But in all things, with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God that passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge of Christ Jesus. Tranquility center of rest, inner peace. To be carnally minded is death, to be spiritually minded is life. Yes, thank God it is peace also. Not only in the sense that you arrive at a philosophy, but that you are protected and guarded by the love of God and Jesus Christ and this knowledge of the truth. And lastly, I want to put it like this, my third subsection, subheading under this uh, positive heading, there is an inner harmony in the personality of the Christian. What do I mean? Well, I mean this. The restlessness of the unbeliever is ultimately due to the fact that there is that uh, kind of dualism in his very nature. There's a sort of dichotomy 
in the very heart of his being. He's suffering from a central division. I mean by that that he's got a sense of right and good, you see, and then there is the influence of evil and sin. Now, he's divided at the very center of his personality. There's always that confusion there. But that's no longer true of the Christian. What you say, is the Christian perfect? Oh, no. He's not perfect. But I am saying, and I think we've been establishing it ever since we began considering the fifth chapter of the epistle to the Romans, that there is in the Christian no longer that central dualism, division. Or, let me put it like this to you, the Christian is no longer in the position of Romans 7.24. Oh, wretched men that I am, who shall deliver me? Now, that's a central division, as the Apostle pointed out to us. With the, the mind, you see, I uh, serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. I delight in the law of God after the inner man. I see another... Now, there's division, as we saw. That's not the Christian. There, as we saw, is the man under conviction. You go right back to the unbeliever, and you find, though he doesn't put it in these terms, there is that central contradiction. But when a man is a Christian, that is no longer present. For what reason? Well, for this reason. That the Christian, as we've been seeing at great length, particularly in chapter 6, knows that he himself is already saved. Well, you say, but he still has a fight against sin. Oh, of course he has. That's the sin that remains in his mortal body, in his flesh. The struggle in the Christian is not this central problem and struggle in the personality. He is now fighting against the relics of sin that remain in his mortal body, in his flesh, if you like, which is a very different thing. The struggle isn't central at the heart of his personality. There he has found peace and rest. He knows that he is saved and finally saved, that nothing can stop it. He's seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus at this moment. And this thing is there, there as it were, in the body, this body that is dying, this mortal body. And he knows there's going to be an end to it. There's no longer this central struggle. So we can adapt, I think, the words of Philip Doddridge that we've already been singing. Now rest my long divided heart fixed on this blissful center. Rest my long divided heart. We all know about that, don't we? My dear friend, if you're a Christian, you know your heart is no longer divided. If you're a Christian, your heart is whole. It's been won by Christ. And even when you sin, it doesn't mean that your heart has become divided. No, no, it's this thing that remains in this body of mine. It isn't in the heart. Now rest my long divided heart. It's no longer divided. The Christian's heart is right. The spirit, if you like, is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's the position of the Christian. He has found this place of rest and of peace as regards his essential personality. There's no longer any division there. Very well then, he has peace with God and he has peace within. But he also has peace with others. I don't stay with this. 
But again I would refer you to chapter 14, verse 17. And indeed the whole of the 14th chapter is a commentary on this. There they were quarreling amongst themselves over days and observations of feasts and food to be eaten and so on. And the apostle reprimands them and upbraids them and says, Look here, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. What is it? But it's righteousness and it's peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. You don't work yourself up into a frenzy about these things. You don't quarrel with one another about these things. You don't despise one another for these things. They were doing that they shouldn't. Why? Well, because it isn't meat and drink, but righteousness and peace. And joy in the Holy Ghost. You've got to understand people. When you see a weaker brother who's in a bit of confusion about these things, you don't despise him or dismiss him. You feel sorry for him and you help him. You help one another. You bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You receive one another, but not to, not to doubtful disputations. Ye that are strong are to bear the infirmities of the weak. That's his argument. You'll find it all in the practical section, beginning at chapter 12 and 13 and going on to the end of the great epistle. But he's got peace in that sense also, and it's a most blessed and a most wonderful thing. It solves so many problems. Now then, there is his general statement. But let me come to complete this this evening to say just a word about verse 8. There the apostle had put it negatively about the unbeliever, the man who walks after the flesh, and who is in the flesh. He says, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. And I am reminding you this evening that the opposite is the truth about the Christian. That the Christian is a man who can please God and who does please God. In other words, he's just repeating what he said in the first half of verse 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Right. The people in whom the righteousness of the law is fulfilled are people who please God. And that means, may I remind you, not only that God looks down upon us as he sees us clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and uh, therefore we are pleasing in his sight, it means more. It means that we can serve him. That we can keep his commandments. And that we are now capable of pleasing him in a positive sense. And capable of glorifying him. It means all that. The other man cannot please God. You and I can please God. Listen to some evidence which I would adduce to support this statement. You remember we are told in Genesis 5.24 that Enoch walked with God and was not because God took him. Well, why was that? Why did God take him? Why did God take this man to himself without his passing through death? Well, the 11th chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews, verse 5, gives us the answer. Why did God do that? Well, here it is. For before his translation... He had this testimony that he pleased God. Enoch pleased God. How? Well, by keeping God's commandments. Abel had done the same, you see. Abel's offering had pleased God in a way that Cain's hadn't. Abel was able to please God. So was this man Enoch. God took him, translated him, because he had this testimony that he pleased God. Of course. 
God's people do please God. Our Lord Jesus Christ puts it like this, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, but glorify your Father which is in heaven. Peter, writing his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 9, puts it like this, You, he says, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. What for? That you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his most marvelous light. The Christian is not only a man who is declared just, he's a man who is meant to show forth the praises of God, to manifest them, to demonstrate them in his life. How does he do it? Well, he answers us in verses 11 and 12 of that first epistle, chapter 2. Dearly beloved, he says, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evil doers, they may by your good works which they shall behold glorify God in the day of visitation. All that pleases God. He delights in people who are doing that. So I would end again with the 16th verse of the 11th chapter of the great epistle to the Hebrews. He is describing Abram and these other heroes of the faith who at the command of God left their country and comrades and family and everything and went out like Abram not knowing whether he went. These men who gave obedience to God's commandments and God's exhortations to them, I'm told about them. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. God is not ashamed to be called the God of such people. Why? Well, because they're keeping his commandments. Because the righteousness of the law is being fulfilled in them. They are showing the results of his powerful working within them. They are showing the evidence of being under the reign of grace. The righteousness of the law is being fulfilled in them. And as God looks on upon it, he says, these are my people. He's not ashamed to own them. He says, these belong to me. These are mine. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. And he has prepared a city for them. Therefore, I conclude by saying that while they that are in the flesh cannot please God, they that are in the Spirit, they that are in Christ, they that are governed by the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus and who have been set free from the law of sin and death can do and are doing and must do what the law could not enable them to do, which is to show that the righteousness of the law is being fulfilled in them. The Christian is a man who is justified. The Christian is a man who is being sanctified. He is already sanctified in Christ Jesus, but he is progressively and increasingly being sanctified. And he is one who, because he is in Christ, will finally be completely sanctified, entirely sanctified. He will be faultless, he will be blameless, he will be without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. He will be holy and without blame, standing in the presence of God. Oh yes, the righteousness of the law 
shall be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we come to offer our humble praise and adoration as we have been looking at these glorious things together. O God, we again would express our admiration at the perfection of thy plan and of thy way. We realize that all this has become possible to us We thank thee for the measure and the extent to which we are enjoying this blessed peace. O God, we thank thee that we realize anew that it has all come to us because thou didst first love us and send thine only Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. O may we be constrained by that love and by that thought, by that love so amazing and so divine. Hear us, O Lord, and bless thy word to our minds and to our hearts and to our wills this evening, that we may become a people of whom thou canst say that thou art not ashamed to be called our God. Hear us, O Lord. And now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit Abide and continue with us. Now this night, throughout the remainder of this hour, short and certain earthly life and pilgrimage, and until we shall be with him, entire and perfect, in glory. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.